We come this morning to continue our study on the subject of the God of all comfort. And this time, the topic is not by the blood of animals. We had noticed earlier that God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Hebrews reminds its Jewish readers that the old Mosaic covenant was also dedicated and sealed by the blood of sacrifice, but under the old covenant, there was no promise of the forgiveness of sin. Rather, the blood bore witness against the people when they broke the covenant and pictured judgment and wrath against their sin for breaking the covenant. But when Christ died to carry out His new covenant promises to the heirs, His blood of the New Testament was for the forgiveness of sins. Aaronic priests offered sacrifices to make a temporal atonement for sin and to cleanse the unclean and to sanctify the tabernacle and the altar. As Hebrews puts it, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Hebrews then makes this declaration. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. The reason for this is that since before the fall of Adam, God had promised death and judgment to all who sin against Him. In the sacrificial system, God provided a picture that pointed to Christ as the only real sacrifice that takes away sin. Those animal sacrifices pointed to Christ as our substitute in the judgment. Part of this picture depends upon the importance God placed on protecting the blood of animals from common usage. Men were prohibited from eating that blood, and it could only be used as a sacrifice to God. The blood stands for the life of the creature, and man's blood is most precious to God because God made man in His own image. One day the Lord Jesus would take upon Himself the flesh and blood of His poor people, whom God loves, so that Christ could offer up Himself as a sacrifice to redeem us. In Leviticus 17, God commands that sacrifices must be made only at the place designated by God at His tabernacle. He restates the prohibition of eating any blood. But then God explains to us why. I have given you the blood to make atonement for your souls. Because the blood is the life of the creature, that bloodshedding of a sacrifice to God satisfies, at least temporally and metaphorically, the just demand of God for death as the punishment for crimes against Him. God provided the blood of the sacrifice to make an atonement for the souls of His people. No wonder our Lord Jesus offered His shed blood, His very life, for the forgiveness of sins promised by His New Testament. It was all foretold in olden times and typified by the animal sacrifices of the Aaronic priests. But if animal sacrifices had made an everlasting atonement for our sin, there would have been no need for God's Lamb to come into this world and die to forgive our sins. Indeed, the very promise of that forgiveness under the new covenant announced by God is an implicit admission that there was no final forgiveness of sin available under the old covenant sacrificial scheme. Just as God gave the people the sacrificial animal's blood as a temporal, 
earthly atonement for their souls. So He gave His Son's life and blood to forever purge our sins. No wonder we are comforted by God's oath to Christ that He would forever be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a better priest with a better covenant, with better promises, and therefore offers up His own body and blood as the perfect and final sacrifice of atonement for His loved one's sins, just as God had required all along. Indeed, God has provided Himself a lamb for a sacrifice for us. Now we continue on in Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 23, where the writer says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The patterns of things in the heavens, that is, the things in the heavens are the true, and the patterns which we see down here in the earthly tabernacle and in the law of Moses, those things have to be purified by blood, but the heavenly things, that is the true, the eternal, the final, those have to be purified with better sacrifices than these, that is, these that were made in our earthly tabernacles by the Aaronic priesthood. So why is it that the things on this earth have to be purified by blood to picture the purification and the remission of sin in the heavenly tabernacle by a better sacrifice. Why is that? Well, because of what he already said in the previous verse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. So to picture that truth, we have animal sacrifices under the Aaronic priesthood. But because it is truth, it is a statement of what must be accomplished in the heavenly tabernacle in the presence of God in order for our sin to be taken away. And it must be accomplished by better sacrifices than these metaphorical, typical earthly sacrifices of poor, helpless animals. Hebrews is asserting the type and picture of Old Testament sacrifices represents the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus for the real forgiveness of our sin. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were displaying the true things of heaven in a temporal way, just as the tabernacle of olden times made with hands represented as a pale facsimile, if you will, of the heavenly tabernacle not made with hands, that is, the presence of the glory of God at His throne in heaven. The real things of heaven required a better sacrifice than those earthly animal offerings could ever possibly make. Now then we go to verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Once again, you see the writer is contrasting favorably what Christ does and where Christ does it and the means by which He does it with the old covenant 
Mosaic Aaronic priesthood, seeking to prove that all of those things are but shabby representations of what the Lord Jesus does as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, Christ does not function in the earthly tabernacle. See, it says there that He is not entered into the holy place made with hands. We have no evidence that Christ ever went into, trespassed into, if you will, the holy place or the holy of holies of the temple. He was in the outer courtyard or even the inner courtyard perhaps where most of the people were allowed. He didn't have any business, did He, to transact inside the temple or inside the tabernacle. His tabernacle is a different and better place, you see. His stage of operation is a different and better place. It is the tabernacle not made with hands, as we shall see shortly. He did not function in the earthly tabernacle, but rather in the real tabernacle of heaven. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself. That's the arena in which the Lord Jesus carries out His high priestly duties on behalf of His people. Aaron operates as the earthly picture in the earthly tabernacle, which is made by man's hands, but not so Christ. He has a different priesthood, and He has a better tabernacle made by God and not by man. It is His natural seat of glory. Heaven itself, that's the tabernacle that Christ does His high priestly work in. And now Christ appears in that real tabernacle, that permanent tabernacle, if you will, the one pointed to by the earthly tabernacle. Christ appears there in God's presence for us. Notice that the Aaronic priesthood while they appeared nearby, close to the glory of God, it was just the temporary exhibition of God's glory that He placed in His tabernacle or in His temple at occasion and finally withdrew from those places. But they were not really able to enter into the glory of God. They had to obscure it with clouds of incense and smoke lest they should see it and die, not so the Lord Jesus. We've said much about this previously. He appears in the presence of God for us. That is, in His humanity, in His human flesh. He is also God Himself. God, a very God, the second person of the Trinity. And yet, the writer is pointing here to the physical body of Christ, the incarnate Christ in His humanity stands before God, stands in the presence of God, is seated in the presence of God, and look at why that is for us. He's there representing us. He's interceding for us. He's our Melchizedekian priest forever who presented His own offering for sin and is there pleading the cause of His people in His own person in the very presence and glory of God. Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He appears in heaven forever before God for us. You see how this is a whole lot better 
than what Aaron did. Fallen, sinful Aaron. Who couldn't hardly appear even in the earthly tabernacle. Even in the limited, veiled glory of God. He had to first offer sacrifices for himself, didn't he? Not so the Lord Jesus. He is our perfect, spotless, without sin of any type, high priest who can go into the presence of God and is in the presence of God without any diverting of the eyes or any clouds of incense to separate Him in His humanity from the presence of the awful glory of God. You see, He's a whole lot better than Aaron. He's a whole lot different than Aaron working in that earthly tabernacle. Our perfect high priest Jesus Christ in His very human body appears before God for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us right here in verse 24. But then in verse 25, we read this, "...nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others." You see, the Old Testament priests had to continually offer sacrifices repeatedly that could never wash away the guilt of sin. They were only types and shadows of the coming sacrifice that could take away sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing out that the Lord Jesus does not have to offer Himself often. This is another contrast between His priesthood and Aaron's, between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant between His sacrifice and the animal sacrifices of olden times. He does not have to enter into the holy place every year with blood of others. What Aaron did repetitively was only a picture of our Lord Jesus' perfect sacrifice. We love to sing that hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts, on Jewish altar slain, could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. That was the flaw. That was the flaw in the sacrifices under the Old Covenant. But notice well, the Aaronic priest appeared in the earthly tabernacle with the blood of others. With the blood of others. Those poor beasts who were slaughtered continually and their blood was taken into the earthly tabernacle. The priest went back continually with the blood of others. And this, of course, is an intimation of why their offerings did no good and why sin was not atoned for in an ultimate and final way. It was the blood of others. What God needed was the blood of a man, preferably the blood of the sinner, without which there would be no forgiveness of sin. But we can't shed our own blood for our own sin because we're imperfect and unclean and sinful ourselves. We don't make a suitable sacrifice. So where is the solution? Where is the Lamb, the man who would take away our sin? But it was the blood of others. The blood of others, no man, the sinful creature's blood, some pagan societies think that they've got this worked out. They'll offer human sacrifices much better than animal sacrifices. Of course, they compound their sin with murder, don't they? With barbarism. 
Because oftentimes they sacrifice people who aren't volunteers. Little children, babies even. People who transgress the tribal decencies and are snatched up or even just snatched off the street and sacrificed in a cruel and bloody way. As if God will be satisfied with a sacrifice of somebody else who's themselves unclean and imperfect and impure. Maybe that's why they like to sacrifice children. They think those will be more appropriate. But all they do is make a stench before a holy God, don't they? He commanded against sacrificing babies and other people. That's an atrocious thing for a society to do. And yet our society in many ways does the same thing at the sacrament of abortion, for example. So the priests went into the tabernacle with the blood of others, that is the beasts, not a man's blood, not the priest's own blood either. Heaven forbid. There wouldn't have been any volunteers to be priests if that had been the rule, would there? And it still wouldn't have done any good because they're unclean as well. They're not a suitable sacrifice to take away sin. And so here is yet another glorious contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and the Old Covenant and Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood of the New Covenant. The first half of verse 26, For then must He, that is Christ, often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If the analogy is followed strictly, the writer points out why then you would expect Christ to have to offer Himself repeatedly, have to go before the mercy seat repeatedly, have to enter into the heavenly tabernacle repeatedly, wouldn't you? But not so. The writer is about to overthrow that idea. Christ's priesthood is better than Aaron's because He only has to make one sacrifice and appear before God in the heavenly tabernacle one time for all. And the reason for that is because of the superiority of the sacrifice that Christ makes. And we all know what that is. If Christ were exactly like Aaron, he'd have to enter over and over with his sacrifice and suffering over and over for our sins. And that cannot be, can it? Can it be? But that would mean, you see, that Christ's sacrifice possessed the same defect as the animal sacrifices. They couldn't take away sin, and neither could Christ's. If Christ's sacrifice has to be duplicated, if it has to be offered up multiple times, then that means that it hasn't really taken away sin, has it? It's merely covered it. It's merely ameliorated. It's merely put off the judgment. But Hebrews is arguing for a perfect final sacrifice by Christ that never has to be repeated and that can be presented one time for all by the Lord Jesus in the heavenly tabernacle in the glory of God. And that's what he says at the end of verse 26. But now once in the end of the world hath He Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Here is the superiority of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus of Himself. That it happens only one time, once at the end of the world, and that He puts away sin 
by the sacrifice of Himself. That's a much stronger declaration than would be said of the animal sacrifices. You remember the animal sacrifices, they were always classified as applying only temporarily or for particular sins for which they were brought. The annual Day of Atonement sacrifice might have been said to have a global effect for the people of Israel for that one year, but at no time does the Old Testament describe the ironic sacrifices under the Old Covenant as anything permanent or prospective towards the future such that a sacrifice can be made, presented in the tabernacle, and we're over and done with all of that now. No, it has to be repeated, and that's what Hebrews is arguing. But Hebrews now asserts that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is a one-time offering that doesn't have to be repeated, and it puts away sin. Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. All the sin of all of His people who trust in Him. Christ's sacrifice puts away. That means it's put away now for us, you see, because He's already made the sacrifice, hadn't He? Before He made the sacrifice, there was the hope that one day an offering for sin would be found that would finally and forever put away the sin of God's people who called on Him for salvation. And then Christ came and fulfilled that hope, that promise, And the new covenant was executed by which God would forgive us our sins and remember them against us no more. But if Christ's sacrifice had had to be repeated, then it would have shown that it had the same defect as all the other sacrifices, that it had not finally and forever purged away the sin of God's people. When the old covenant is at an end, is when the Lord Jesus' sacrifice is offered. The end of the world here represents that time when God replaces the Old Covenant by Christ's New Covenant at that time when it is time for the Old Covenant to be taken away. Of course, we know that nearly around these times when Hebrews was written, Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and that was the end of the Old Covenant sacrificial system, wasn't it? There haven't been any sacrifices made by Jewish people under the law since 70 A.D. When the Aaronic priesthood is finally over, the animal offerings replaced by the true offering of Jesus. This is what it means here, the end of the world. One might also view it as uh, similar to the beginning of Christ's church age, where the gospel goes all over the whole world to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. But it is the time when the work of the Old Covenant, the the testimony of it, the picture of it, is finally at an end when it's fulfilled by the reality of the Lord Jesus as the true sacrifice, as the great high priest who takes away sin. Christ appeared, you know, in the fullness of time at the right point the apostles told us. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, we read this well-known text at verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption of sons. This is the reference or one of the references to this idea of the end of time or the end of the world when the Lord Jesus came into this world incarnate in our humanity and fulfilled all the law for us and set aside the curse by being made a curse for us by dying in the place of His people by making the final definitive sacrifice that really takes away sin. Christ appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And you notice that this is a restating of what the writer of Hebrews said earlier on in the chapter at verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So there is the restatement at the end of this little portion of Scripture, this last half of Hebrews chapter 9. Now it says, For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the ages hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. It is the one-time offering that is made by the Lord Jesus and presented in the heavenly tabernacle before God forever efficient to put away our sin No wonder God has comforted us by His oath to Christ. Thou shalt be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all that flows from that, His representation of His people in the glory of God in the real heavenly tabernacle, His offering up of His own body and blood as the only perfect sacrifice that can put away sin forever for all of His people, all of these precious gospel truths are bound up in that solemn oath God made to Christ that He would be forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And as Hebrews told us earlier on, this is the way in which God comforts us by His oath to Christ, which He will never break. And Christ can never fall down on the job or fail to carry out that appointment which God His Father solemnly made to Him from the beginning of time. Now in Matthew 26, we read of Christ's impending fulfillment of this duty to make a one-time offering for sin. We know the text well, don't we? Remember at the Lord's table, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it. Gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood of the old covenant was shed at the time of its ratification as a warning against wickedness and disobedience and a warning of judgment and wrath. But the Lord Jesus' blood of the New Testament was shed for many for the remission of sin that God might fulfill His promise that He would not remember our sins against us anymore. But then it goes on 
At verse 31, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. God's sword of judgment smote the Lord Jesus, His anointed shepherd. God smote Him, not man. This is the text that the people who oppose penal substitutionary atonement bridle at. In fact, it stops their mouths because most of them have never even thought about it. It was God's sword that awoke against our Lord Jesus at Calvary. He slew Christ for our sins and in our place. And it was the wrath of God against Christ that was the principal sorrow and judgment that the Lord Jesus had to go through. And it is a very sad Very sad thing to hear and perhaps the only thing that kept the disciples from sorrowing unto death was that they paid little attention or were wrapped up with their own selfish desires. If you remember, they wanted to know who would be the greatest. And they made all sorts of bravado assertions to Christ. They would never leave Him or forsake Him and so forth. But He told them otherwise. I think the sadness of it probably struck them after Christ was buried in the grave, that He had died. And now they thought there was no salvation. How can a dead Savior save anyone? But it is part of our comfort in the finished nature of Christ's sacrifice. It is finished, you see. It never has to be repeated. Our sins are forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ. And our Lord Jesus never again has to repeat His offering or go through the sorrow and the agony and the humiliation of the cross and worst of all of being judged for our sins, having them laid upon Him when He had done nothing wrong and being treated as sin in our place and taking it on Himself as though He were guilty that He might pay the penalty of His life and blood as our sacrifice, you see, He has put away our sin for all time by this one sacrifice of Himself. And the writer of Hebrews is impressing on these Jewish believers the superiority of Christ's sacrifice, that it's finished, that it's completed, and that they would be fools to walk away from Jesus and go back to the old Testament sacrifices which still apparently were taking place but not for long that could never save that had to be repeated and that left them ultimately with no hope for redemption. One loves to remember the words of that beautiful hymn the sacrifice is o'er the veil is rent in twain the mercy seat is red with blood of victims slain Why stand we then without in fear? The blood of Christ invites us near. And so we are allowed to go into the presence of God through Jesus Christ because He has finished the job and made that one offering for sin and it never has to be repeated, thereby showing Himself to be the victor over sin and hell and death and the devil, and thereby showing us that He is a real Savior, not a pretend one or a flawed one like the Old Testament priesthood and their sacrifices might have been seen. But it was always necessary to look for the 
sacrifice which God would provide of His own hand in the body of His dear Son. And so at the Lord's table we celebrate the sacrifice that's been completed, that's done the job of saving His people forever, never needs to be repeated. Christ never has to go through what He went through on the cross to save us. Never again. Now there's all, all glory in the presence of Jesus. And His glory is fulfilled and certain and accomplished and increases from strength to strength. And all the sadness is over. All the pain is over. All the rejection and sorrow is over. And as the Lord uses His Word to open our hearts to understand what it meant, how it operates, and what it's worth, you see, the joy and the rejoicing of the saints and the Savior can only but increase. For now we know what He has done. Pray God we'll know more and more and better and better what He's done. And as we gather around this table, let us be careful to comprehend what the bread and the wine signify to us, what they point to, what they mean. All our hope and life and joy are resting upon the real body and blood of Christ that He laid down for us as that offering for our sin. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus poured out to make atonement for us. O oh God our Father, we rejoice that in Your dear Son You found that perfect Lamb of sacrifice to take away our sin and that He laid down His life on the cross for His people, and that He poured out His blood, He shed His blood, His life drained away from Him there on the cross in payment of our guiltiness and sin and shame, and that You received it as a perfectly acceptable, suitable offering that takes away sin, that puts it away once and for all. We thank You that the one-time offering of Jesus is sufficient for the forgiveness of all the sins of His people who call upon You in faith and repentance. And we, we thank You that there is no more animal sacrifice. Better than that, praise God, there is no more sacrifice of Christ. He is over and done with that work. And now He's seated at Your right hand. Angels and principalities and glories bowing before Him. He's entered into the joy that was set before Him. An ever-increasing joy as His people whom He redeemed are gathered in to His presence with exceeding joy. We thank You that that blood cleanses the conscience of all who put their trust in Him and takes away the guilt and the shame. Pray You would work in our hearts to work and to do all the good pleasure of Christ in obedience, not for our own justification, but because we love Him, because He loved us first, and that He might be glorified by our obedience. 
and by our praise and worship. Thank you for this cup He left us, the picture of that blood by which He made forgiveness for our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 191 in the black book. Faith eats the bread of life and drinks the living wine. Thus we in love together knit on Jesus' breast recline. Soon shall the night be gone and we with Jesus reign. The marriage supper of the Lamb shall banish all our pain. Number 191.